So I'm bored of. I don't want to look at people on a screen. I don't care. I don't want to look at myself. Don't care. Not abs. Not interested. Don't care. We're not your PMC. We're not your PMC fucking minions, George. You should be happy to see us. You're my colleagues on the podcast who are fuck you. The most, the worst, like deluded, like people who think they aren't PMCs. Mm. (laughs) Because the fucking most classic PMC trait. We're not your fucking colleagues, so get that right at least. Deluded PMCers, we might be, but we're not your fucking colleagues. I mean, this is work. Don't don't. It's a meeting where I have to say shit and Remember, this pretend is that I'm interested Remember, when other people recorded, are talking. And it's That's going work. to go out to our listeners. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> Fuck you too. This is- <laughs> Hello, this is Mr. Bunga Bunga, joining you from the top of the Kirinali Hill, from the banks of the Dniepro, and from your esophagus after you've swallowed the Bunga pill and have decided to leave the Matrix. This is Bunga Cast. It's uh, Wednesday, the 19th of January. This is Alex Hochuli, and we are also George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe. And this is the three articles on Italy, Ukraine, and the Matrix. Hello, guys. Hi. Hey, how's it going? We are. are, Each one of us is all three of us. We are a that's uh, dialectics. That's dialectics. Yeah, a trinity, if you will. Mm. Call a forward, ho- a, a holy or uh, otherwise. So we're going to get started. If you're new to us, welcome. Uh, the way this works is we each bring an article on current affairs, and they can be on varied topics. And uh, and this week, it very much is, as we're talking about, uh, well, a film uh, and matters in Italy and the matters in Ukraine, Russia, and beyond. Uh, so we're going to get started. And uh, I guess I'll go first, because I have brought an article uh, on Italy. And this is by uh, Thomas Fazzi, a previous guest as well as Paolo Cornetti, uh, how the EU destroyed Italian democracy. Of course, uh, regular listeners will immediately identify a recurring theme here, Um, but we're not just going to go on about how the EU is anti-democratic, but we're going to specifically look at Italy as this this article does. Um, This came out in Unheard uh, this week, and uh, the article starts off from, well, actually, before I start uh, off on the article, you may have noticed uh, we've been publicizing on social media because we're um, kind of freelance or, or actually voluntary uh, campaigners for Berlusconi's run to the Italian presidency um, because it would just be very good for this podcast. So we uh, are upfront about our interests here. Um, Silvio Berlusconi is trying to make this remarkable return to the front line of Italian politics to become president of Italy. This is just a quick insert to say that this was recorded before Silvio Berlusconi very sadly dropped out of the race on the weekend of the 23rd of January. He said he was withdrawing out of concern his election would sow division at a time when Italy must focus on battling the coronavirus pandemic and implementing its recovery plan. I decided to take another step on the path of national responsibility, he posted on Facebook. So much responsibility, so sad. The president of Italy, as I'll go on to explain in just a second, is traditionally a mostly kind of ceremonial, symbolic uh, function, but has gained increasing power in recent years. Um, But also running for president is uh, Mario Draghi, formerly of the European Central Bank and current prime minister of Italy. And he's the prime minister, the leader of a national unity government. Uh, And previously, he was sort of the EU's henchman 
uh, in Italy uh, and was instrumental in deposing Berlusconi, in fact, in 2011 and putting in a, another national unity government or a technical government or a technocratic government, however you wish to phrase it. Um, so this is the backdrop and that election is going to happen on the 24th of January. So actually the first round of it will already have happened by the time you hear this on Tuesday, the 25th of January. Uh, the article by uh, Fazzi and Cornetto, Cornetti, excuse me, um, starts off by explaining how the presidency has changed from this a role which is traditionally understood as ceremonial. Um, obviously, it has some important powers in in terms of the ability to to so, sort of veto certain laws and so on. But the actual role that that, that the president's played has grown, and this has effectively implied a change to the Italian constitution. Uh, and it also speaks to the change that Italy has undergone as a democracy, as a member state in the EU, and even more so uh, in the Euro. And, and that kind of has implications, um, you know, for other countries in, in the EU as well, um, although they, they happen in different ways. What is common to the, these sort of mutations as a member state, uh, which uh, the authors highlight here, is that it increases the role of the executive and of technocratic bodies at the expense of the judiciary. So it weakens the parliament uh, and weakens the sovereignty of, of parliaments. Uh, Legisl the states. legislative, you mean, not the judiciary. Did I say judiciary? Yeah. Oh. And you also well. said Cornetto rather than Cornetti. Cornetto well, is a nice cream myself. Alex, which <laughs> sounds myself. familiar but isn't. You shouldn't just assume that all Italians have the same kinds of names, Alex. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all food. It's all food names. I'm going to change everything. And you should know better food. as well, being in the Italian capital of Brazil. So that's that's yeah, possibly quite possibly true. So excuse me. Yes, it it, it weakens the the uh, legislature at the expense of uh, the executive and technocratic bodies. Um, so the, the president, and here the, I'm quoting, the president, uh, president's role that changes from a guarantor of the constitution to a guarantor of the country's, quote unquote, international obligations. This specifically means that the president has an increasing role in making sure that Italy toes the line with its, uh, to its EU obligations, uh, and rather than necessarily than representing the people's will. Um, or rather just maintaining you know, the rules of the game as, uh, as inscribed in the constitution. And so this has been something that's been visible over the past couple of years, uh, over the past decade and a half or so. Firstly, with Giorgio Napolitano uh, as uh, as president who governed during the Euro crisis. He was instrumental also in deposing Silvio Berlusconi in 2011 and putting in a technical government headed by Mario Monti. And then Sergio Mattarella after him, who remains president currently, uh, who played an important role in, in 2018 in easing Mario Draghi in as prime minister, again, in, uh, as a head of another sort of national unity government, as a way to avert new elections and further crisis. And I think this thing about Italy being kind of permanent crisis since, you know, really around 2011, uh, is something that is goes hand in hand with the growing role of the president. Um, it was who, a very dramatic roll of thunder. There, there is, yeah. No, I, we need to get this. To what you were saying? Yeah, we're getting the kind of afternoon monsoon rains here, and it's, it'd be good if uh, the weather cooperates and hit, the thunder hits at the exact kind of judicious moment. Um, it's very yeah. atmospheric. It is. Yeah. Are you getting oh, this? Another. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to edit yeah, this out. Yeah, very cool. Um, so anyway. There's, there's the election uh, next week. Well, it'll have been yesterday when you're hearing this listener. Uh, and it's a secret ballot by, uh, of 321 senators, 630 deputies, and 58 regional representatives. And if they don't decide on someone in the first round, it can go on and on for quite a while. And the scenario planning here is 
quite complicated. I'm going to try to very briefly say what the possibilities are um, without going into trying to you know go into too much depth because it might end up being a little bit confusing. But basically, um, Draghi is favored to become president, to leave the prime ministership and to move to the presidency. The worry with that is that it might weaken the government. He obviously ha is, a, is an incredibly authoritative figure in Italian politics and indeed in European politics. And there's the worry that with general elections in 2023, that a right populist government will come to power and that, that may, they might... Um, well, shake the European boat, to say the least. I, I don't know if they would necessarily seek to take Europe out of the euro or out of the EU. Um, often the right populist parties end up being more bluster than, um, than the reality. But anyway, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of concern there. So again, what role would Draghi play there? You know, would he be able to veto legislation, veto ministers? Uh, so that's one possibility. The other possibility is Berlusconi actually makes it in, which is looks still pretty unlikely. It would have to go to, through several rounds of voting um, and where he would end up more like the last man standing, a sort of compromised candidate. We don't know. Um, and the other option is that Mattarella, the current president, stays in place, gets another uh, mandate as president to remain in place until 2023, making sure that Draghi stays as prime minister, keeps the show on the road, and then at the 2023 election, then Draghi moves on to the presidency. So there's various different scenarios here, um, and we can maybe discuss some more of these. Uh, yeah, kind of, and obviously we, we stand we stand for Silvia. We stand we for Silvia. We want Big Sil back in office, and definitely, as, as you yeah. said, as you said, we're, we're fully accelerationist on this regard. You know, there's nothing, Absolutely. there's nothing good that's going to come of this, so might as well choose the most chaotic option. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we want Big Sil back in office. There's no doubt about it. Uh, good for our profile. It's good, you know, good for Silvio, and also um, hopefully there'll be more bunga bunga. Well, indeed. So one one thing which you didn't comment on, Alex, is that the <clears throat> article is accompanied by a photo of a of an Italian um, politician. And you look more closely and it's Berlusconi. Uh, he is- um, Looking remarkably youthful. He's unrecognizable. Um, his face is, is not as-, as um, well, Neither, neither as wrinkles it, nor smoothed out by Botox, right? So it's like, it's yeah. more natural face, yeah. It's I several, I mean, it's several cosmetic interventions ago. So it's when he has no hair. What? No, I don't yeah, believe he, he has, has, no, he has no hair. any work done. <laughs> No, look, I think it's only like appropriate that um, we acknowledge like, you know, the importance of appearance here. He has, um, he has no hair or he's balding here and um, he's clearly had no facelifts and no Botox. So he looks positively like, you know, like an old fashioned, like, uh, you know, Italian politician should look. Um, whereas now, of course, he looks like a kind of uh, waxy. Um, a waxy U.S. Republican senator from, you know, some kind of backwards place. And well, I, you know, it, 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 the, the photo actually almost looks like a still from um, Paolo Sorrentino's brilliant film Il Divo, which is actually about a previous age yeah. of Italian politics, about the 1980s. Um, yeah, but yeah, it could be that, couldn't it? Yeah. Um, but anyway, as, great, as to the meat, as to the meat of of the thing, you guys have any comments? It's a on great, this? <laughs> well, it's a great piece, right? And Thomas Fazzi is, I mean, you know, without a doubt, at least in English, I think um, the best commentator, um, at least one of the best commentators on Italian politics at the moment, and his pieces in Unheard have been um, unfailingly kind of incisive and sharp um, and insightful. And here, he really draws out that point about. 
mean, worth stressing, I think, because it's still, it's not really been absorbed into public debate and consciousness, is that uh, membership of the European Union is not membership of a club, or not just membership of a club, but also involves an internal political and social transformation. And in this case, um, you know, um, Fatsi and Cornetti make it very clear that the transformation involved is the shift from a parliamentary system to a de facto presidential one, but without the um, accompanying kind of formal constitutional changes. So you have a de facto president in a system that's still constitutionally supposed to be parliamentary. Um, so yes, yeah, so you don't have a directly elected more, president, right? Yeah, without any kind of popular input into the presidency. But this supposedly ceremonial head of state has a tremend tremendous scope of power as a result of Italy's place in the Eurozone. And so the technocratic kind of or the place of the president is now increasingly to ensure that Italy remains loyal to the markets and loyal um, mm. to the ECB. And the other important thing, I think, which is important in what um, in what the piece says is the instability. I mean, you mentioned this already, Alex, but it's worth reiterating that it's created instability. So the membership of the Eurozone, particularly since the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis, far from bringing um, this kind of German style economic stability that was supposed to be the result of currency union in Europe, it's, provo it's provoked much more political instability. And to compensate for that, you've had the growth in the powers of the presidency in Italy. And so the growing authoritarianism, the growing presidentialism of Italian politics and its instability is um, a direct result of European integration. So not only more coercive, but also failing to deliver the kind of prosperity and political stability that membership of the euro was supposed to supply. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's uh, really, yeah, it's a, an, another great piece from, from, from Thomas. I think the, it might sound like my, my reflections on it are pretty surfaced. I've talked about the, the picture that accompanies it. And the other thing that I would particularly want to highlight is the is the title how the eu destroyed italian democracy i think that's not quite right um or doesn't quite correspond to to what really happened because i think as the piece kind of outlines it's not so much that the eu destroyed italian democracy but the eu was the mechanism through which italian elites could undermine italian democracy and i think that is an important difference because it then positions yeah. like where is the where is the ultimate most force coming from is from Italian elites who want to escape uh, any kind of democratic accountability. It's not the EU. I mean, it's, you know, this is the point we've made we've made before. Um, but I think it's important to, to to repeat points if if you think they're they're good ones. Um, yeah. So it's like th this is the mechanism, the inflation of the the presidential office that, as you remarked on, Alex, that kind of that redefinition of, from a guarantor of the constitution to a guarantor of quote unquote international obligations. It just it it really is a good mechanism for um, for escaping any kind of democratic accountability, particularly on um, particularly on economic issues. Um, you know, and that's part you know part and parcel of being part of the eurozone, I guess. Anyhow, yeah, and uh, that desperation to maintain the famous vincolo esterno, the you know the kind of external link, the thing that would effectively be the fetters and perhaps the whips that discipline Italian democracy and especially the Italian people and prevent the um, coming to power of any sort of democratic popular government, which uh, which Fatsi refers to. Um, it, you know, one part of that is is the elite's own 
yeah, insecurity. And I think this, this it's quite evocative. I, the, the penultimate paragraph, um, ref, uh, Fatsy and, and uh, Cornetti refer to, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll quote from it. A telling demonstration of just how desperate the Italian establishment is, is that opera goers at Milan's La Scala Theatre recently greeted President Sergio Mattarella, who was in the audience with chants of bis and encore, imploring him to serve another term. Um, oh, so, that's so lame. And, it, and so it's you so can lame. see that yeah yeah no i mean, no, I mean yeah I, I i i mean i think it's actually there's something about it that's kind of old-fashioned there mean, is when would you expect um a european leader a to go to the opera and b that the kind of this classical um you know uh, this kind of classical arena for the expression of bourgeois kind of culture and art is where they express their political preferences um, in a public setting, their support. I thought there was something kind of remarkably old school about that, um, about that detail. So different, um, you know, so different from others. You and just, you just I said wish... that the that the British elite don't go to the opera and chant encore to to Johnson when he makes an appearance. <laughs> they, so uh, the British elite do occasionally go to the opera, but not in not in their political, um, not in their political uh, in their political role. But it wouldn't be it Johnson, wants... you know. It'd probably end up being they would have to ch chant, you know, bees and encore. I can tell you, it was to, Michael uh... Gove. It was well, Michael Gove. Uh... I saw Michael Gove at the opera. So this is a story for you, for listeners as well. This is a few years ago um, when the Ring Cycle was in town. I went to see, and it was in fact the Ride of the Valkyries, so the third in the Ring Cycle, and the very with the very um, with the very famous kind of um, opening that was used in Rift Off in um, Apocalypse Now. But anyway, gonna, this, can you can you sing Ride of the Valkyries? For, I can't for sing Ride of the Valkyries it. for your listeners, but I saw um, what's his face, uh, the terrible Romanian comedian there. Um, uh, you have to narrow yeah. it down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and I saw Michael Gove in the audience, and I was going to tweet Michael Gove working hard while he's at the opera. But then decided this was during the daytime. Then decided that was maybe throwing stones in glass houses. So yeah, I think he was minister for education <laughs> back then, and thought that maybe tweeting about Michael Gove being at the opera during the day um, was maybe not a not a wise move. Yeah, stones. So, in so glass you saw houses. two two ring pieces there at the opera. Yeah, there was something I don't know. Anyway, it's only to say like. Um, you know, there is uh, there is still, it seems, then an Italian bourgeoisie, um, at least in a way, perhaps a Euro kind of classical Euro trash bourgeoisie or remnants of one anyway, um, who would still kind of plead with their favoured, their favoured, um, their favoured uh, figure, I suppose, to remain in politics. I yeah. thought that was well, uh, an we, have plen we have plenty of Italian listeners, so they can uh, chime in. Let us know if we've Indeed. mischaracterized the Italian elite here. Um, one other thing I, I wanted to highlight, well, two, just quickly. Uh, one is that there's a good piece by Adam Tooze on his Substack about these matters, a discussion of them. I don't necessarily agree with all his points, but there's, there's some good reading of some legal theorists and whatever about what's actually going on precisely about um, about the kind of changes to Italy's constitution, uh, kind of tacit changes. Um, one of which is that, uh, well, two citing a, a legal theorist saying that Italy has become over-constitutionalized. And then two's comments uh, that Mattarella was repressing debate in the name of unspoken constitutional principles, that Italians 
could have any government they wanted, except one that challenged the imperatives of Eurozone membership, which I think puts it all very clearly, um, very concisely. Um, so anyway, I guess we'll link to this piece as well, um, because it's a useful uh, background, yeah. or it's a bit longer, but... Uh, but also it's the important point about what specifically happened was that they vetoed the um, economy or what he did, what the president did was prevent um, the uh, com the candidate who had been chosen by a five star and Lega coalition from taking up his role as uh, minister for the economy, precisely because he was seen to be Eurosceptic. And this was part of the way of quashing again kind of any flirtation or rumor or discussion of Italy's exit from the Eurozone that spooks the markets, um, you know, sends um, sends the costs, uh, interest rates kind of, or uh, Italy's debt repayments higher and all of this nonsense. And so this was a deliberate kind of, this is the kind of one of the most powerful instances of uh, demonstrating the role of the presidency in ensuring Italy's conformity with the Eurozone. But it's, and it's kind of like a kind of, I don't know, a postmodern liberals dream, you know, kind of father figure, not who, not one who, you know, just performs the ceremonial roles, but actually is able there to castrate anything. You know, it, this is the ombudsman, someone you can run to uh, in case democracy gets out of control. Um, is, that, is that a postmodern liberal dream or ombudsman? Ombudsmen. Well, I mean, the, the kind Ombuds of the, people we've talked about this, a judicialization of politics and the, and the, the, the you know, the wish that some not, not adults are in, in charge. Freudian, not quite as in those Freudian terms that you're so fond of, Alex. No, I well, I mean, I, we can leave that to one side. I mean, the, the, the point is, is that, you know, here is someone that and you can think of in British context of running to whether it's the House of Lords or to the courts um, in the US, of course, the Supreme Court, you know, a much lo much longer standing tradition of a kind of anti-democratic counter-majoritarian institution to which uh, to which you can have recourse if uh, the votes go the go against you. Um, one final thing just on this is that uh, it has a nice conclusion, which is um, it's no surprise that global elites today look to Italy as a model. The Economist even went as far as crowning Italy country of the year. Um, and that's great because we we've called Italy the country of the future for quite a while now. So it, it seems that uh, you know, we've debated whether the end of the end of history meant Italy was no longer the country of the future, that, that Italy foretold in the early 90s, the whole period of the 90s and 2000s, and maybe early 2010s. Uh, the question is, is whether Italy is still the country of the moment for uh, 20, for the 2020s. Um, and I think a lot of what, what we've said here uh, suggests that it still is. So um, something to return to. Moving on to the next article. Uh, going to move east to the Ukraine. Phil. Yeah, so this is a piece from The Economist, so um, anonymous uh, anonymous correspondence, though frequently you can work out who it is from Twitter, but in any case, so this is an article named As War Looms Larger, sorry, the title is As War Looms Larger, What are Russia's Military Options in Ukraine? And it was published on January the 17th, 2022. So this is a rundown, basically, I mean, and indeed, again, by the time that listeners hear it, just as much as the first round of voting might have happened in Italy's parliament for a new Italian president, indeed, you know, um, uh, conflict might have broken out in Ukraine and there might in, have been a Russian incursion, invasion, military intervention of some sort um, by the time that listeners hear this. Or maybe not. We'll see. It's basically a rundown of the um, growing tensions uh, between the West and Russia, including beginning opening up with how Sweden is remilitarizing its... Um, its uh, uh, border zones with Russia, specifically an island in the Baltic Sea, 
um, and generally how tense things are, and a rundown more specifically of the military options available to Moscow in its standoff over Ukraine, because at the moment it has most recently, apparently by the most recent count, about 120,000 troops um, on Ukraine's eastern border and apparently is redeploying military forces from um, Russian Asia to uh, military exercise in Belarus, which would enable um, Russian forces to attack from the north as well as from the east. So I guess worth reading for the range just to see kind of what the options are, but I suppose the overall point is um, just astonishing that it's even got to this level. Um, so I assumed, you know, for, I mean, this is the escalating tension is the result of the collapse of negotiations between Russia and the US over Ukraine. Um, and I assumed basically that, um, I suppose, along with many others, that the military mobilization on Ukraine's borders was essentially for show as part of putting military pressure um, on the West in advance of negotiations. And um, neither, and I assumed, you know, that the Russians would back down from some of the most um, dramatic demands that they made, such as refusal to countenance expansion of NATO into Ukraine and Georgia, um, the withdrawal of various um, uh, missiles, US-based missiles from Eastern Europe. I assumed they would back down, and they haven't. And so this has caught me a bit, um, a bit by surprise. Not least so because you, so you you underestimated the the warlike nature of of, of the Rus of the Russian no. soul, <laughs> the Rusky. No, what I did I think was I um, underestimated their range of military options. So it seemed you know, but given the kind of this the military force is in no way capable of overrunning Ukraine or occupying Ukraine indefinitely, this is what made me think that it was essentially a stage army. But as the Economist piece points out, you know, there are a range of options by which they could exert pressure, military incursions and raids to devastate Ukraine's military forces, to lay siege to Kiev, to in various ways kind of force the Ukrainian government to fold. Um, but, you know, so I just want to say, I suppose, you know, aside from that, um, the actual kind of options available to the Russian military, um, and still the lack of clarity as to whether or not um, Vladimir Putin has already made a choice for war, it's astonishing to me that we are in the situation at all kind of decades after the end of the cold war of the possibility of a clash between um a western backed ally and russia itself and it seems to me that speaks to a astonishing really remarkable failure of diplomacy and grand grand strategy on the part of um, Western elites, foreign policy making elites in particular. And I suppose in the aftermath of Iraq and the insanity of the war on terror, that should come as no surprise. Yet it's still, and yet, you know, maybe this is my naivety, it still comes to me as a surprise. And it's obviously, I mean, you know, the other thing that should lead, that should not be a surprise is the fact that it's come with the Democrats being back in charge, right? It yeah. seems to me that it's um, very unlikely to have happened if it uh, had been another Trump, um, if it had been another Trump administration in the White House. So the, I'll leave it. I mean, I just want to make one final point and leave this and then hear what you guys say. think is the other element that seems so um, troubling about this, apart from the notion of war, you know, um, with uh, a great, a nuclear armed great power 
over matters that are vital to obviously to Ukraine and also to Russian security interests and far less so to West, Western European security interests. But the other element is there's no obvious route out of confrontation. So there are no kind of political options on the table to, by which it would be possible to kind of broaden the context, political context, and provide options that would help resolve the issue. So what you need really is some kind of grand bargain on Russia's place in Europe. And there is nobody that has the political vision um, or the political outlook that could construct some kind of institutional space at the pan-European level that would give a context in which Ukraine would be able to retain its sovereignty and territorial integrity and Russia could be folded into a larger political space without confrontation with the European Union. And it's that the absence of that vision that I think is um, most telling of all, because it seems there's no es real escape route from conflict of one kind or another. Yeah, and that would be a big a big failure of NATO as well, right? And it, it would show the well. I mean, I guess my my kind of reading of this is it is related to who's in who's in the White House and the you know not to get all nostalgic for um for Trump, um, but it it is clear that this is <clears throat> you know the the um, the Democrats' view of how to keep peace in in Europe is um, pretty self-defeating or it seems to be one that leads pretty um, reliably to uh, to conflict like the, the Clinton idea of increase expanding NATO it's like yeah that's it's, you know it doesn't actually lead to peace I mean I don't know how I suppose I, I don't know if they actually think it does and they're or if they're just if they're deluded or they're just um, yeah. disingenuous so they don't, they're not going to go to war. I mean, it seems very unlikely they'll go to war, you know, they'll go to war for Ukraine. Though, as has been mentioned on Twitter, you know, I mean, World War One started um, in the examples of great powers underestimating the willingness of um, their enemies to support smaller powers. Um, but I, I guess what's what's really happening here is that the Democrats are happy to let Ukraine burn in order to revenge themselves on Russia. So they're happy to kind of let Ukraine burn, to draw in a Russian military incursion, to cause kind of general chaos and conflict on Russia's borders, to lure maybe even the Russians into some kind of unwinnable um, counterinsurgency with Ukrainian guerrillas kind of picking off Russian forces. They're happy to do all of that in order to revenge themselves on the Russians for what they still um, maniacally, you know, imagine that the Russians are somehow responsible for America's political problems over the last several years. Yeah, I mean, I was I was interesting hearing you remark on how surprised you were, Phil, about how possible war seems, I guess, because I, my, my assumption also is, was, well, I'm not going to pay too close attention to this because it's going to be resolved. Russia's will, you know, play a bit of brinkmanship and ultimately will gain some concessions. The US doesn't have that many interests there that they can't come to some sort of accord. Um, not that it'll be long lasting, but, you know, they'll, they'll come to something. Um, and yeah, the, the Economist article really in laying out all the sort of um, strategic possibilities it does make it seem like, well, this sounds more like some sort of Russian invasion is more likely to happen than not. Um, what's interesting is that contrasting that with, I guess, what you'd call the other great Anglophone um, market-oriented media, which is to say the FT, 
Um, and maybe there's a triumvirate because the other one would be the Wall Street Journal. But the FT is far more circumspect. They have, they have this good uh, infographic piece, which you can link to, I guess, as well, which is about you know how serious is Vladimir Putin um, about uh, launching a major offensive against Ukraine. Uh, and it you know goes through like Vladimir Putin's 5,000 word essay on what how he's about the, the eternal brotherhood between Russia and Ukraine and blah, 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 blah. Kind of reading between the lines, very useful piece as well. Um, but doesn't go into so much of the kind of military strategy aspect of it because it generally kind of thinks that, well, it says that there's various possibilities, uh, you know, and that they could invade through Belarus and so on, as Phil has already detailed, but seems um, more reluctant, I think, to, to, to say that war looks on the on the horizon. So I don't know how to, how to read that, whether that's the economist being more hard on for war, which it always has been than the FT. No, but uh, what I'm saying but, is, I guess what I'm saying is, though, it's remarkable, you know, the very fact that it's at this level and yeah, at the brinkmanship, I, 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 you know, I mean, it's astonishing. And hmm. somehow it doesn't seem, you know, I mean, at the moment in the in Britain, like the press is consumed with um, the internal kind of politicking within the Tory party over who broke lockdown when and who's more hypocritical and all the backwash of the catastrophic, you know, increasingly visible failures of lockdown. And, you know, at the same time, there's the possibility of war with Russia. And that is astonishing to me how um, how little impact it kind of makes yeah. on public consciousness. But, um, but this was this was I was reading this and thinking, yeah, it's like you know Sarajevo, nineteen fourteen, whatever. You know, you made the reference to, to World War One, and the the feeling. I don't know what the feeling was then in Europe, whether, you know, publics were out discussing with the possibility of war and whatever they were, you know. And it doesn't really seem to be. Um, I think on they were radar. Mean, yeah. yeah, I think they won. That's the point. Mm. Well, I mean, so one other one other thing which is interesting, and this relates to well, very closely to what we were saying, is how ready Russia is for some form of confrontation, not all out conquering of vast swathes of Ukrainian territory, though at a push maybe, but certainly various different forms of incursion, whether it's to you know take build a get a land bridge to Crimea to Crimea or to go all the way to Ukraine and a kind of more surgical intervention to force a change in Ukrainian government, whatever it might be. Um, but that, you know, the retaliation, the general understanding, I mean, my general understanding has been, I think it's something we would share, is that the conflict between the US and Russia is is nonsense because Russia is much is a much weaker and much more defensive power than the U.S. establishment likes to portray, because the U.S. likes to portray this as being a continuation of the Cold War, and that Russia is very strong and malicious and wants to take over, you know, vast swathes of European territory, which isn't the case. Russia's actions have been mainly defensive. Yeah. Um, but the, the, what's interesting here is that Russia now is in a situation in which they could quite well withstand retaliatory measures from the West. Um, one, I, uh, this is from the FTP, so again, very useful. They have a national wealth fund of 200 billion US dollars, uh, and their dependence on foreign investors has been greatly reduced and only accounts for one fifth of all sovereign bonds held. Uh, and of course, they've got their uh, hand on the gas. Uh, what well, would, would you say? Like the, the hand on the gas tap, 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 tap. Crank? that's what it tap? is. Yeah. yeah. The gas on tap the crank. To, to your, and, and that's, that's quite interesting. <laughs> I don't know. What is that? Anyway. Um, that's what Phil said. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, that, that's one scenario where if Russia did take 
quite serious action in Ukraine, the U.S. would seek to retaliate by cutting Russia off from the SWIFT international payment system. Russia could then retaliate by cutting off gas to uh, Western Europe, and then who knows where that uh, situation leads. So in some ways, you can see that escalating quite a bit, and not just at a kind of geopolitical level, which is, you know, only reported on the news to the extent that you can say, you know, the Ukraine war never happened like Baudrillard did about Iraq, but that actually, you know, if Russia starts cutting off gas to Europe, that provokes a very serious crisis in European societies, in Germany, for example. Uh, so it suddenly becomes all very real. Um, so I'm it's, not saying that's going to happen, would, I, but but it, but yeah. it's, what I, all I'm saying is that the, the the move from this kind of weird hyper real moment where you're d- discussing the possibility of war between the U.S. and Russia but it seems completely somehow very fantastical and removed could suddenly come home very quickly. Ironically, Russia turning off the gas to Europe would turn up the political heat in this, um, in oh this particular God, context. No. That was, I mean, that's like, that's, that's the kind of stuff you hear on the BBC. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's worse. My God. They're going to defund you, know, you like, and we And we also, yeah, defund. Fucking, what do you want? Bunga defunded? <laughs> Like we ask our listeners for a lot more than fucking forty three p a day. <laughs> Defund me, yeah, fine. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, but you know, best not miss if you come to the king. Um, what was what I was going to say is that I think part of the wider context here, and this might be me being really super crude, but it's like the U.S. versus China, like big geopolitical rivalry. This um, after China was good on the pandemic. There now needs to be another a new enemy. So Russia's like stock as um, the old Cold War foe, the the Rusky menace will increase. That's my <laughs> that's my. I just thought that needs to be thrown in there because it's like okay, n- not realistically going to go to war with China because you know they're they're too well organized. <laughs> I don't know what. Well, and just too powerful. I mean, would that, be, you know, but, would be, yeah. yeah, just too powerful. So got a got a countenance war with Russia to kind of um, it's flex your I'm not sure what your point yeah, is. I mean, an interesting thought actually. I'm not. I'm not sure I follow the, the point. Can, can you like what was China as a distraction? Like China was or... the enemy. Well, China was the enemy, but they were good on the pandemic, so they're now not so much of an enemy. But what do you mean so good you on the? What enemy. do you mean good on the pandemic? Because I mean the the conflict with China has not abated in any way. But, I mean, and not just they... with, not just considering the US, but with other. Uh, other European powers and elsewhere. So the, the various elites across the world look to China and think, you know, they did a good job. They locked down very um, strictly and, and, you know, they, they controlled their citizenry and, you know, they, they're good now. But they're I'm not sure, but I'm not, but, I, not but, an but enemy. I don't disagree with that. They might think that, but I don't know how much that pay plays into their strategic calculations which are much more, which are more long-term about, you know, you, right. where well, gonna, you might where think I'm... they are. I'm basically saying that I don't think their strategic calculations are that strategic. I think they're quite emotional and surface and political. I'm going to demure. I'm a, I'm I'm a gonna, realist. I'm going to demure from uh, the consensus of the other two Bunga boys. So I think what the, what all of this presages is that there is the increased likelihood of great power conflict, I think in the 2020s and the 2030s in a way that wasn't true in the Cold War or obviously um, in the 1990s and 2000s. And I think that applies to China too. So I could see, I, you know, I think it's possible, quite possible, in fact, there might be some, you know, kind of um, that US 
U.S. ships and Chinese ships, say, might exchange fire in the South China Sea or that there might be some kind of military standoff or conflict over some kind of, you know, rock or atoll. Um, and that, but that it won't lead to world war, but it will become that great power relations and geopolitics in general will become far more tense and it will, they'll become far more um, unexpected in ways that are difficult to fathom, given, you know, the fact that we are used to kind of great powers always coming to the brink, but never actually exchanging blows. And I think that's more likely to happen. And I think this is so, probably the first of um, the crises of a new era. Um, I can see for, you know, I could easily see, I think, um, conflict escalating in the Pacific between America and China. But because it happens far away from their borders, they're able to diffuse a shooting war before it escalates into an all-out world or world but war. How, how, how does so, kind of like cyber attacks and, and things like that factor into that? Because the destabilization yeah, sure of infrastructures and in, in home yeah, countries. So I'm sure that, that you know. kind of stuff, I'm sure that kind of stuff would also, um, will also kind of play a part. And it already has in Ukraine. I mean, it seems like there was, there was a cyber attack on Ukraine's um, internet. And, you know, I mean, it was uh, presumably a Russian attack just recently. So I'm sure all of that will also be part of it and will bring, will be a way of bringing home the costs of conflict um, to, uh, to civilians. Um, I mean, they knocked out some, they knocked out some Ukrainian websites, but if they're anything like Serbia's government websites and to, and to be honest, they're probably worse. uh, They're not really missing much. Just, just terrible websites. Some, some Serb, some Serb bashing, but no, I mean, Phil, I mean, I guess to put you on the spot, then you, you, you say that there's going to be increased kind of great power conflict. um, And you mentioned like, you know, potential kind of territorial conflicts. What do you think of the top three strategically important atolls, which are likely to generate, kind of great power conflict in the in the 2020s so this isn't my theory it's a theory of a colleague in oslo um oistran tunsha and he's the one who's developed the idea that it's um that the atoll theory the idea that don't, it's be, don't be an atoll geo, geostructural realism the point is without getting into all the technical points of the theory but that the world that there is a cold war between the us and china that we're already in that situation but that it's a very different kind of cold war from from the past and so where you had in the european situation where you had the um kind of checkpoint charlie and you wouldn't have guns you wouldn't have military you, know, you wouldn't have bullets being um fired over checkpoint charlie and you wouldn't have tanks crossing it but you would have lots of tension there um he says that is very different you won't have that kind of situation because the border lines are much messier um in the south china sea and around all those atolls and um all those kind of contested sea lanes and so it's far more likely that you will have um some kind of messy conflict about that they will develop mechanisms of seeking to prevent that conflict from escalating into a full-blown war because it's very far from the territory that's at stake in this case the us you know um the us mainland and the chinese mainland um so it's his theory i find it persuasive and i also think that given what we're seeing in russia that there will probably you know that there will probably or russia and ukraine there will probably be more of these kinds of conflict and maybe even this will become normal and the very normality you know the very fact that it's happening with such little kind of public um consternation or um concern seems to me already to speak to that new normal so so mm. it won't be it won't be that the ukraine war never happened like the iraq war would be like yeah it happened but so what 
Like it doesn't matter. Kind of, we, yeah. We're bored by it. And okay. you know, and that kind of, and maybe that leads, and you know, maybe that is the situation of Europe in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties that eventually does lead when they run out of room. Then it eventually does lead to a breakdown in that um, system of managing geopolitical tensions. Um, who knows? Anyway. Mm. And then revolution. So you know, it's good stuff too. Um... <laughs> <laughs> which I, I say as someone who you know as if i were someone who had just read you know kind of one history book when i was 16 and that was it and also um, someone who lives in brazil and so therefore will be um neatly insulated from anything that happens in mm, europe or yes, in exactly. asia pacific mm, so I'll, south america I'll, I'll just be scribbling riding, away here yeah always riding on everyone else's coattails are we are we moving from revolution <laughs> to resurrection yes now? we are yes we are nice segue Oh, I just thought I'd help you out with with one of those. Normally, you you come up with those off the cuff, and they're very good. But I thought that's the, a sub Alex uh, segue, so I will. will that's good. It there. worked. Go for it. Thanks for your um, <clears throat> approval on that one. Yeah. So the the third um, in this this tr- trilogy, um, never ending trilogy of uh, three articles, um, is uh, Slavoj Žižek's review of the Matrix Resurrections in the Spectator on the 12th of January, it's actually uh, revised. <clears throat> I think there was a longer piece in Philosophical Salon on the 10th of January. But anyway, it's a review of the most recent Matrix film, which is titled Boringly Postmodern and an Ideological Fantasy. Um, so kind of putting his cards on the table there. And essentially, I mean, this is a, a film that has... Um, <sighs> occupied entertained exercise Zizek the the original trilogy in particularly the first uh, one which came out in the late 98 or 99 I can't remember off the top of my head um and we've had a reboot we've had a reboot this this um at the end of last year uh, came out in in British cinemas at least in in December um and I think the thing that is of most interest for the uh, um in the review because we don't we want to be a spoiler free uh, podcast um so i will spoil the review and not the the film is that zizek concludes with um the following paragraph or this is how the paragraph starts every reader has for sure noticed that in my description of the movie i heavily rely on a multitude of reviews which which I extensively quote, the reason is now clear. In spite of its occasional brilliance, the film is ultimately not worth seeing, which is why I also wrote this review without seeing it. Um, so, you know, this is probably why the review takes a bit of the tone of a, a student who hasn't read the required reading and is kind of, you know, drawing in things from all various well, other Only the secondary locations. literature, yeah. Exactly. Secondary literature, you know, don't need to read the primary literature. But I mean, it's a film. It would have taken him longer to read the reviews than to actually watch the um, watch the film. But of course, the I, I mean, I guess I'm sort of I think the initial premise of the um, particularly as like a, a teenager of the, the of the Matrix film, you know, we're all stuck in in a computer simulation um, and, you know, do you do you want to stay in that simulation or do you want to, to break out into real life and fight the machines that have for some reason constructed the simulation to use humans as batteries? That's a kind of a, you know, a, a modern twist on a classic philosophical problem. But I guess my in watching this film, 
and sort of reading this review, it, fe- it felt a bit, and I, I, you know, I was the one who suggested it, so I've only had myself to blame. It felt like a bit of a slog in just how can anybody eke kind of philosophical interest out of the fourth film in which has the same, the same premise. Um, so I guess, I guess the, so I think I'm not sure that all of us have actually seen the film. Some of us are true Zizekians. In fact, I think I'm the only one who has, um, but yeah, I think it's just. So you should let I Phil and I, Phil and I speak about it because. Yeah, uh, exactly. I shouldn't yeah. be, I shouldn't be kind of um, such a uh, privilege hog and just say, because I've seen it, I can comment on it. I think we want to be a bit more yeah, radically that's horizontal privilege. than that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We well, it's just democratize yeah, I've had the, knowledge. I've had the experience of seeing the film. You guys haven't, you know, to maybe tell, you know, I'll pass it over to the two of you to tell us about your experience of not having seen the film, which is equally as valid as my experience of having seen it. Well, my experience of not having seen the film, but having read the G-Jack piece is, I mean, it's kind of, it's so brazen, you kind of got to, you got to admire it. But also there is... Um, there is one point in it which I think was truly kind of brilliant and classic, um, a classic kind of Jajakian maneuver, which is where, so in the original Matrix trilogy or the original Matrix film, in fact, Neo, the protagonist, who's played by Keanu Reeves, he wakes up when he kind of breaks out of the fake virtual reality created by the Matrix. He wakes up in this disgusting, in this pod filled with disgusting slime and um, you know he's naked and helpless and he looks around him and he sees all of these millions of pods lined up kind of with all of his kind of fellow fellow human beings in in these same kind of um, weird fetal pods generating electricity for the matrix um, and so that was you know that was the kind of premise of the movie that reality is this kind of ugly um, you know, this ugly, desolate place dominated and alienated and dominated by these, um, by this uh, technological um, wizardry of the matrix, the virtue, the computer, the, which is manipulating our senses, right? And G-Jack kind of inverts this in here, where he says that in fact, like given the fact the matrix now is so kind of cliched and every kind of, you know, loser, kind of philosophy tutor will talk about red pills and blue pills they'll do the mobius thing when they're talking to their students and red pill has been appropriated by the old right about kind of you know opting for reality outside of the liberal kind of matrix world um given that it's all kind of so cliched that now in fact the idea that you wake up in a pod is in fact the illusion Right. So everyone is competing to be the ones to tell you that you're living in some desolate wasteland dominated by forces that you don't control. And that, in fact, is the illusion. So instead of the retreat from this kind of fantastical um, virtual world into this supposedly real world, which everyone is now offering to demystify for you, you know, like, in fact, it's the other way around, that this is our new kind of um, popular fantasy that in fact is the that is where the illusion resides and the idea that you're going to wake up in a pod and you'll see reality around you um and so let it be known so for listeners let it be known that we're not doing that so we're not going to tell you that you're going to wake up in a pod and you'll kind of see the reality around you it will always be um weird and strange which is why you'll need us to guide you through it exactly you don't see reality by taking off the glasses you see reality by putting on the glasses uh so you know there's no escaping ideology 
It's, it's the point when it's Zizek's point. Uh, and we're going to explore that actually in a, in a, a reading good club when we come to it. And it's, it's, it's still an essential point, which Zizek made very early on in his career and has continued making, but it's, it's, it's still a brilliant one. It's his, it's his one point, I would say. It's yeah, a good point. That's it. It's not his one point. He has many good points. But for those who got to read books, George, I'm afraid it's not just, you know, you can't just kind of look at articles. Yeah, you can't just okay. read his, his stupid Art Russia Today pieces where it's like the only place that'll still they're publish them. Stu- they're not stupid. They're very good. Sometimes they're um, good, but they're a bit lazy. They're, you know, they, they can do with a good edit. Now he's got knowledge. Now he's got knowledge privilege. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I, sorry, I, I, Alex, you were I wanted to say draw attention to the final paragraph because it, it, he does, I think, two interesting things. And maybe we can try to parse this together because I don't quite understand it or don't know if I do. But anyway, so he obviously makes this point, first of all, that I haven't watched the film, um, right? Um, and, uh, and and that is maybe a sort of commentary on the postmodern nature of the film where it the, this new reboot abandons the idea of a kind of reality um, and a fantasy and that everything is kind of, you know, we just have multiple layers of fantasy as reality and reality as fantasy fantasy so ultimately all that matters is a good narrative right this is kind of the the kind of postmodern idea of just various different stories competing with one another and so Zizek weaves a story based on other stories which are which is to say other reviews without ever accessing the real (laughs) ever ever accessing the film so that's like one funny joke he makes I mean maybe you don't find it funny but whatever I think it's I think at least it's clever um and it's no less than a stupid film like this deserves I haven't seen the film but I can pretty confidently say it's stupid the other one the other point that he makes um is that uh, he, he immediately after says I haven't seen it is the editorial that appeared in Pravda on January 28th 1936 brutally dismissed Shostakovich's opera Lady Macbeth of the Metzensk district as muddle instead of music Although Matrix Resurrection is very intelligently made and full of admirable effects, it ultimately remains a muddle instead of a movie. So, okay, what's going on here? He's suggesting, he's putting himself in the role of Stalin, who, and, and there was, there's some suggestion that Stalin was pretty directly uh, involved in, if not writing that editorial in Pravda in 1936, at least kind of, um, you know, Instrumental in dismissing the film and dismissing Shostakovich's work then as formalism, but basically it was too avant-garde, right? And it didn't uh, it didn't kind of follow socialist realist uh, strictures. Um, and so, in in a way, but I think if I'm if I remember correctly, and this is a long time ago since I read about this, there's, there's some suggestion that maybe Stalin hadn't even seen Shostakovich's um, opera. And uh, and so this um, attack on him, you know, in muddle instead of music, which then, you know, Sostakovich later recanted and whatever, um, was was based on no real knowledge of what Shostakovich had actually done. So in a way, Zizek is kind of putting himself in the role of the Soviet censor or even a Stalin in doing this. I don't know what's going on here. I mean, firstly, you're, are you like, putting you're, yourself in the position of Stalin? Alex? Always, no. always. <laughs> You've got a mustache. Your erudition yeah. in in knowing who supposedly maybe wrote this editorial in Pravda, that's you know that's that's obviously very impressive and and I didn't I did not know that, um, but I think the in some ways this is like he pulls a punch though Zizek because he's like let's so let's just hope that Lana's next movie will be what the Fifth Symphony was for Shostakovich, an American artist's creative response to justified criticism. It's like 
Okay, and let's just hope the next one's better. No, I no, no, but, that, but, that's, think... but, that's, but that's a direct quote yeah, because yeah, Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony was subtitled An Artist's Creative Response to Justified Criticism. So that's him directly responding see, to, the, again, to the attack his on his erudition. He's dazzled you and outflanked you with his erudition, I George. S- you stepped right into his trap of erudition. <laughs> but I still think it's like the review. Well, it depends. What, what is a review of a film? Like surely one thing that the film that, that the review should say is like, is, is how many popcorns out of five popcorns do you give it? Is this worth watching? Like, should would you recommend people to see it if it's not a good film? Yeah, you have I to think say it's, it's not two good. stars, right? Because he says it's very intelligently made and full of admirable effects. It ultimately remains a muddle instead of a movie. I think he's reaching. So my read of it is he is putting himself in that kind of in the way that he likes, you know, kind of a kind of slightly pathetic aging shock value epate la bourgeoisie whatever he's kind of he is putting himself in the position of stalin but he's also reaching out to lana wikowski and saying hey why didn't you you know involve me like in your next i'll give you some smart philosophical ideas to play Mm. around with and he's hoping it gets back to her and she reads it and you know the next the next kind of um the next yeah, installment in this endless series of sequels is that it'll be a jejekian one rather than this kind of classic um, Cartesian one. Well, we'll, well see what the no, reviewers corn, say. They, corn, the, the, the film might get Lacan. Lacan. That's good, actually. But no, I mean, it's almost, Cornell, almost worthy of George himself, Alex. Anyhow, I think that this review kind of misses the point, which is not a particularly original one, which is that, like, we have another Matrix film. We have so many sequels. We have sequelitis. We have this completely in inert um treacly sluggish culture which can't help can't do anything other than just go back to this film which you know was pathbreaking in its time not you know partly some of the effects bullet time of the first film that idea of having all these cameras and they all take an individual picture so it looks like the camera swinging around really quickly that was that looked really really cool um but this latest one doesn't you know you can't be that innovative um both kind of in terms of you know, reposing an old philosophical question of the, 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 you know, which pill to take and also having that kind of sort of formal invention. I mean, it's just like, surely there's a, there has, you have to kind of at least take a side swipe at the whole of culture in a review like this and say like, why is it that there are just like no new ideas? Everything is a resurrection, well, a reboot, a, like a sequel, a prequel, a, like a fucking extended universe, blah, 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 blah. Well, that does raise a good question, actually, because you you um, already brought up the question of the role of the reviewer. Um, and I think there's two things. One is like the commercial review, which is, you know, the kind of idea of like, should I see it or not, is redundant now because you already have so much access to content before you have to buy it because you don't have to buy hard media, that, that it's kind of redundant in the same way that, you know, should you buy the CD or not? You don't have to buy a CD, you, you stream it. So the review has to more directly engage with, the materials artistic and you know whatever quality social qualities um and not just be a kind of commercial review so that makes that aspect redundant but on the other hand when it comes to reviewing bullshit like this and i think we everybody's already aware like the, the it's not like um you know an insight to say hollywood is kind of mostly bunk nowadays you know in a way that they could still throw up good blockbusters threw up a lot of crap but also you know there was some, some stuff that was of still of some value and now you know, as you're saying, George, everything's everything is just a, a repeat. And so what is the role of the reviewer in regard to that? Because what, what else do you say? 
they have no ideas well yeah but we know this so do you do you not so, is it is it important not so, to review it at all just yeah, just maybe a that's page. why i didn't watch it yeah yeah no but you'd like you can imagine like one of lavoche's friends being like oh you know oh, i actually got like free evening you know go to the cinema should i go and watch uh, matrix resurrections and then lavoche just like talking at them for five minutes and then at the end of that conversation it's like oh i haven't actually seen it it's like well well I think there is a there is a you there is a role I still think of a reviewer in terms of like providing some discretion, some judgment towards beauty or some kind of aesthetic criteria. It I mean, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you actually have to see the film. There's a story about Lukacs, who was uh, who who was not a cinema fan. He was planning to write uh, an aesthetics of cinema, and then somebody said to him, "But you but you hate cinema. You haven't seen any films." And he was like, "Ah, I have. I've seen The Blue Angel. I've seen one film." And then he was going to write an aesthetics of cinema. And that's quite impressive. I like that chutzpah. This, this sort of like writing review, having not seen a film is, is less my, uh, less my cup of tea. I think see one film and then review all of them. That's good. Uh, write a review of a specific film, having not seen it bad. That's my review of the review. I give this review to like one thumb up out of three thumbs up. That's my mm. own one sum up the atoll. Uh, <laughs> on the next three articles, three articles that we haven't read and that we'll then discuss. Should we leave this here? <laughs> Actually, one there is final point. If you can find a reviewer of films who like your the sort of films you like correspond to the sort of films they like, that is a good thing. That is a joy because then you can actually have some navigation through uh, through cinema, um, which is you know a friend guiding you that's that's well, one I, I, vision I, of a reviewer. I, I, I think that would be very useful and i don't have one um but the other thing is that we're so kind of pre-exposed to the content of what we're gonna have you know there's previews etc there's trailers it's all already there you already almost know the film before you've seen it to the extent that you might even think i don't need to see it <laughs> I, I can already cast judgment on it it is quite nice just to watch a film having almost no idea what it's about um it's the and age but it. it's and again, it's kind of a point that's been made before, but it's not really the age of the big movie anymore. It's the age of, um, you know, the TV show Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and all the Wire and all the rest of there it. There are more. There are more recent TV shows than those. But no, yeah, I no, mean, it's, but not it's, really good. More recent ones. I mean, Better Call the Saul of... is meant to be very good, but I haven't seen it. But the mov movies are kind of over. You know, it's endless sequels, right? I mean, um, it's endless sequels, but there is genuine artistic stuff happening but it's on netflix and uh, on streaming well that's interesting you'd say netflix because it's also the age of netflix playing paying 300 million or whatever it was for the next two knives out sequels so it is the yeah, age true. of the big budget uh, home streaming which is not you know not the same as a spectacle like uh, june which i massively enjoyed and i you know kind of enjoyed the matrix resurrections you know it's it's loud and there's all these effects and it's like yeah that's kind of cool like yeah, a lot a lot was retain some wonder a lot was riding on dennis villeneuve recreating cinema basically i mean it seems it's basically down to him right so with blade runner 2049 and with june and the sequel the june sequel um he's basically the only director kind of working at that scale or at least you know kind of um there's Ridley Scott, but Ridley Scott, you know, is kind of uh, aging, and I haven't seen the most recent movie, so I can't talk about it. But um, yeah, it seems to me that kind of grand visionary that's over, right? Yeah. So sorry, what was that? The yeah. June sequel, also called July. 
Oh my god. You made that last you made that joke last week too. Uh anyway. I make it every week. Yeah. You know, growing up I I thought that we would I hope that there would be politics, that there'd be big geopolitical things that then shook everything up. And that's kind of, you know, what's been happening. We were talking about it with Russia, US, China, um, stuff domestically. Uh, you know, that's the return of politics. And, you know, I thought mainstream culture was shit, as I'm sure, you know, kind of we all did growing up. But I never thought that mainstream culture would also die um, and that we would live through a period of, of a dying culture, effectively. That's kind of remarkable. And I'm not sure what to do about that. Uh, but right in with your suggestions. Uh, that's it for now. Thank you for listening. You should make a podcast. Yeah, maybe that. Yeah. Okay. Catch you later, everyone. Bye-bye.